Where are you? Get. I see ya. Get out of here. Gotta do a podcast. Good morning. It's me, Chris Spangle. Just here sitting on my front porch. It is my birthday. And on your birthday, you're allowed to do whatever you want, just like Donald Trump. It's the only day where it's acceptable to act like Donald Trump. And nobody can say anything to you. So, start my mornings a lot of the time. You know, I work for a morning radio show, so don't tell them that I'm doing this. But uh, I feel like doing a podcast. So I'm sitting here on my front porch, enjoying some water, my Nalgene bottles. Uh, if if you know me, you see me with a blue Nalgene bottle in tow. This fucking cricket. I got a broom. Only the best quality for my listeners, and I can't have this cricket going off. Come on. Out. Out. Let's go. I needed to clean this up anyways. Did I get him? You son of a bitch. Where are you at? You little bastard. Where are you? So I live in a duplex, and in between the porches, there's like a little indentation, like a long rectangle. Over here is the brick, and then over here is the brick, and then in between there's like this little cove. (sighs) Now he's just taunting me. Come on, get out. I don't know. We'll see what happens. He's probably going to go off just to spite me. So I'm in the cove with my long broom trying to sweep out the cricket. Um, But September 9th, it is my birthday. And I'm just enjoying the beautiful morning. I think it's, what is it? Uh, 61 degrees, sunny. The top of the trees are starting to change. Right in front of my house, we have two big, beautiful maple trees that keep it shady. I don't know if you knew this, but there's a study done once in cities, and your affluent areas of town are 8 to 12 degrees cooler because they have trees in front of their yard compared to poorer parts of the town because cities would take care of areas of town. Now this was, um, this house was built in 1900. It was a working class neighborhood. Uh, maybe a little touch above working class, middle class neighborhood. Indianapolis was known back then as the city of houses. Uh, it's always had like a weird growth period because of where it is. And it was laid out by the guy that laid out, helped LaFontante or whatever his name is. His name is Ralston. He laid out Indianapolis. He helped lay out D.C. So we have more, we have the second most monuments and have our own little Washington Mall here in Indianapolis. That's why we have the circle. And the part of town I live in was kind of urban sprawl in the 1900s, about 80 years after the city was founded in a swamp. Um, 
And so they planted a lot of trees, and the whole neighborhood went to hell in the 60s and 70s, a lot, lots of abandoned lots, and kind of came back late 90s, and now is, again, a middle-class area. But there's these two big, beautiful maple trees that just keep, you know, it's like having a garage. I'm looking at my car, and it's underneath this maple tree. Hold on, there's a, a walker. So I didn't want the guy to think that I was talking to myself, so I just had to be quiet for a minute. Um, I'm not embarrassed to talk to the several thousands of you that listen to this podcast. <laughs> but if one guy walks by on his morning walk, it's a little loony to be talking to yourself, I think. Um, I have no microphone, I have a lapel mic on. But these two big maple trees just keep our, our house really cool, shady. But you go to poorer parts of the town and, and you don't have that. Um, I, I think I have conquered the cricket. Like Queen Elizabeth in Kenya, I have conquered. Rest in peace to the queen. Um, Twitter's an absolute dump, dumpster fire. Uh, I personally like Queen Elizabeth. I think she is... If you look at Queen Elizabeth's career, maybe you're only exposed to her in the crown. But she and I have a lot of very similar approaches to public life. Uh, there was this one speech that she gave, the Anus Herilibus. I don't think that's how it's pronounced, but it's a speech in 1992, and everything was kind of going wrong for them at that time. You had Fergie topless in the news. Imagine when Fergie was the worst part of the monarchy and not Prince Andrew. You had Charles getting divorced. You had... Uh, you know, this just really bad. It was one of the worst years for the monarchy because from the beginning of Elizabeth's reign in 1951, I believe, when she was 21, it was not a guarantee that the monarchy would continue. You had all these different countries have given up their monarchy. And I think one of the reasons she's seen as the world's queen is because there were so few other monarchies. Now, So, listen to this. This is a speech she gave on the 40th anniversary of her taking over. I won't do... Uh, okay, I'll do my queen impression. I sometimes wonder how future generations... Okay, I won't do that for the whole thing. I sometimes wonder how future generations will judge the events of this tumultuous year. I dare say that history will take a slightly more moderate view than that of some contemporary commentators. Distance is well known to lend enchantment, even to the less attractive views. After all, it has an estimable advantage of hindsight. But it can also lend an extra dimension of judgment, giving it a leavening of moderation and compassion, even of wisdom. That is sometimes lacking in the reactions of those whose task it is in life... Uh, to offer instant options on all things great and small. No section of the community has all the virtues. Neither does any have all the vices. I'm quite sure... I keep accidentally closing it. I'm quite sure that most people try to do their jobs as best they can, even if the result is not always entirely successful. He who has never failed to reach perfection has a right to be the harshest critic. 
There can be no doubt, of course, that criticism is good for people and institutions that are part of public life. No institution, city, monarchy, whatever, should expect to be free from scrutiny of those who give it their loyalty and support, not to mention those who don't. But we are all part of the same fabric of our national society, and that scrutiny, by one part of another, can be just as effective if it is made with a touch of gentleness, good humor, and understanding. I think this sort of encapsulates uh, a lot of the discussion around monarchy in Britain, but also it's a little bit relevant to today, even though it is 30 years old. We live even more than then, so, you know, the tabloids were just eating them alive. The 90s were a very difficult time for Queen Elizabeth and the royals. She was seen as very out of touch after Diana died, um, but then managed to pull it together with the help of William and Kate Middleton, although it sort of spun out of control. I, I don't know how long the British monarchy will last. There's obviously a very real criticism that they are a drain on public resources. Um, but they have something that that obviously we don't, which is, you know, I saw Ben Judah tweet something along the lines of, this is a spiritual leader, a military leader, a political leader this this is it's it's there's nothing in american life that you can comprehend and it is sort of true like we she served like 15 and a half presidential terms or something you know fdr's revered after four what she's essentially saying here is we should be critical of people in public life we should be critical of institutions there is no sector of public life that can offer all of the solutions and every aspect of it is needed uh, in American life. That means governments, uh, businesses, small businesses, churches, synagogues, um, nonprofits, media institutions, uh, all of these different pieces and components come together to create the fabric of society. Um, you'll find often that, you know, once we get into our media silos, we tend to start to drift off within those silos towards focus on destroying or building only one of those aspects. If you're actually out in your community and a thriving part of your community and somebody that is involved, then you see how all these different pieces interact to come together. You can't, in, in a city like Indianapolis, for instance, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, or now, uh, the planting of these trees in the front of my house, there's many different decision makers that would go into that. If you... Uh, look back on the history of Indianapolis, for instance, we have something called the sports strategy. And the sports strategy was the Lilly Foundation, uh, which is the byproduct of the Eli Lilly Pharmaceutical Company. Uh, after Lilly died, uh, Colonel, not Colonel Lilly, the original, but his grandson, Eli Lilly, who really built the company and was a huge, huge philanthropist um, and historian and 
left his money in a, in a foundation that came online in, I think, the 70s and really started to pump money in Indianapolis to help build all these different projects. Uh, and the, some of the money, you know, you take something like Market Square Arena, which is where Elvis performed his last concert, the Pacers play, was built right downtown. Um, and then that led to the building of the Circle City Mall, which led to the RCA Dome, the Indian, city of Indianapolis, with private and public money, built a football stadium two years before they had a team in hopes to lure a team here and eventually got the Baltimore Colts. Uh, Indianapolis in the 70s and the 60s, essentially because of urban sprawl, people moving not just to areas like where I am, but to places like Plainfield, which was 30 minutes away where I grew up, left downtown as a... I mean, you went to the circle to get hookers and blow <laughs> until really the 90s. Um, you just didn't go downtown. There was only a couple restaurants like the King Cole. And so this group of guys got together and had this vision of what the city could be. It's called the City Committee. It's the lieutenant governor, white Republican lieutenant governor named John Mutz, black senator named Bill Crawford, and many others, all the political leaders, all the civic leaders, people from the major corporations and minor corporations and rotary clubs would just get breakfast once a month and try to figure out what they wanted their city to be. And it really embodied the spirit of the city in that it was what is best for the city first and what is good politically for us second. And that still kind of rings true in Indianapolis in a lot of ways, uh, which has created a vibrant growing city. We have the Salesforce Tower, it's considered the Silicon Valley of the Midwest, thanks to Mitch Daniels and uh, his efforts at Purdue. Um, and when he was governor, we have a massive movement of school choice and charter schools here in the city because of Democrats, uh, not just Republicans. Um, it's a city that's willing to experiment and try things. Now, as a libertarian, I've often been against a lot of those things, like the cultural trail and the $10 million in federal funding that went towards building the cultural trail. But I'd be lying to you if I didn't say that I love riding my bike on it all the time. Um, excuse me for the train. Uh, I don't even know where the train tracks are. Uh, <laughs> okay. Um... I've literally never seen train tracks, and I walk and ride my bike around here all the time. Um, so my point being is there's all these different elements that make up the fabric of a city, of a state, of a country, of an organization even. You know, where more than two are gathered, there's there's just people who bring different pieces of something together to create something great. You look at We Are Libertarians... Uh, yes, of course, I'm great, and I'm an amazing podcast host and podcast producer. Many are saying the best. Many people are saying it. But really, the success over the last 10 years has been the amount of people that have invested their time and energy and fun and dollars. Everybody from the patrons to the co-hosts to the sponsors 
that, that have helped create something that has become an institution and something that you enjoy, uh, which has really just changed my life for the better through friendships and my wife and my divorce. Uh, you know, it's, it takes collaboration and it takes diversity to create a lot of great things, but it also takes some criticism. You've got to have criticism uh, to produce something or to build something because somebody has to say, no, this isn't the right way. Um, I think one of the criticisms of my show right now uh, is coming mostly from me, but also from some of uh, those closest to us, is that we're a little, little stale right now. Um, I think we're giving a lot of good information. Uh, these young voices interviews and nonprofit interviews are interesting, but it's not quite the same show. It's not quite us sitting around the couch having a conversation like it used to be. Um, and I think there's a place for both. So I've mentioned this to our patrons, but we are bringing back We Are Libertarians as a feed and as a feature within this feed. Um, we're building a studio, and think I mentioned this on the show, the Doolittle Studios. Jason Doolittle has graciously given us some seed money to start that. Um, and we are building a, a studio. Um, I also want to thank Craig DaCosta. I'm so sorry for this train. Uh, I really do apologize. Uh, it's not the best quality, but you don't come here for the best quality. You come here... For why, I have no idea, but thank you for being here. Uh, I also want to thank Timothy Merlino for donating to the new studio. And it is my birthday, so I would say, you know, if you you want to pitch in and help us build out this new studio in Harry's front house, and you want to give me a birthday present, my Venmo is at Chris Spangle. Um, you know, PayPal, paypal.me slash We Are Libertarians, or join Patreon. That'd be great. Um... You know, we we want to have fun again and kind of have a free-flowing conversation like we did on Boss Hog in that episode that was posted last Friday. That was a lot of fun. And we really think we can only do that in person. The Zoom shows are good, but it's just not as much fun as when you're in the same room with each other um, having some of these conversations as a panel. And we'll still do some, you know, over-the-air stuff, because people like Sarah Brady have been great on some of these issues, and she obviously can't fly into Indianapolis every other month. Um, but we're going to mix that in. Uh, I want to know from you guys, um, I have a diverse portfolio of podcasts. I'm, I'm, I'm still going to be doing the Chris Spangle Show. So I'm not saying I'm not doing that. I'm saying that uh, we are just upgrading what we do. Uh, so in addition to, you know, the, these panel shows and roundtable discussions of friends having conversations, that's going to be in person more. Those have not gone away. I know you have not heard Harry in a long time, but uh, like I've said, Harry has a, 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 a little more than a toddler. Ours is kind of three and a half and it's really tough to make a standing Saturday commitment. <laughs> so 
my schedule with Harry's schedule has not matched since April. Um, and we talked about it and we're like, we need to be more intentional about meeting together. And if we're going to do that, let's do it in person. Um, but I've promised this to be the year of consistency, which is why you know, I found some people to interview and to make sure that there's stuff in the feed that is, uh, you know, I, I heard from a lot of patrons in January that they liked the show, but they wanted shorter things that kind of covered some of these issues, which is why I've, I've partnered with Young Voices um, unofficially to just interview a lot of their folks, doing more of these little chats, um, just to make sure that, you know, we're giving you good information. Um, but I, I will never not be into politics. I will never not be a libertarian. But I have to be honest, I've really spent a lot of soul-searching over two or three years trying to decide if I want to be a professional political commentator. Um, you know, my, my job is good at Bob and Tom. I, I enjoy everybody I work with there. Uh, I know that just as a matter of my own professional career and interest and you know, who knows how long that show goes on. Radio is known for being a cruel mistress. Uh, so I'm, I've always got an eye prepared for my second career. And I spent a lot of time maybe, you know, working on columns or doing this daily and turning this into a radio show. And you've heard some of that experimenting. But I have to be honest, the idea of waking up every day and talking about politics makes me just want to put a knife in my brain. I... I can't imagine waking up and uh, there's also not, there is a hunger and thirst for moderate libertarian views. Now, if I were building a, a, a libertarian society, it would be an extreme minarchy uh, where the courts would be centralized uh, and monopolized. But that's it. <laughs> like, those are my absolute dead views. But uh, I don't think we're ever going to live in that world. And I don't know that I even really trust my own people. Um, and so I have to be realistic. Uh, and I also believe kind of what in Elizabeth of what she was saying in that... We're all part of the same fabric of our national society and scrutiny of one another can be just as effective if it is made with a touch of gentleness, good humor, and understanding. And I think if you're going into political talk, uh, there's a lot of bad humor, not a lot of gentleness, and zero understanding. And that is what people want. Uh, I look at the Matt Walshes of the world and, and even as a personally Christian conservative leaning person there's a lot that I listen and I'm like alright I hate that I agree with you but you're such a bitch you're such an asshole <laughs> right like, and there's a lot of me that's per like I look at the, the Queen Elizabeth thing as just the perfect thing the people who are libertarian who cannot separate the person from the institution dancing on her grave 
uh, on the right because she's a warmongering child molester. Like, I just, I'm not, I don't agree with you. I think you're terrible. And then on the other side, which I do think is a valid criticism, uh, the, um, Queen Elizabeth is wearing jewels in her crown, and King Charles III will be wearing jewels in his crown that were stolen from India and Africa. And their wealth exists on the backs of colonialism. Uh, African slavery was driven by the English crown here in America, uh, perpetuated by southern slaveholders, no doubt. But Elizabeth, I, I think, has, is not getting cr uh, credit from a lot of her leftist critics. If you just look up on Twitter, she's dead, those two words. A lot of people on the left dancing on her grave along with the right. Um, but Queen Elizabeth, you know, Irish Twitter is on fire. Like Queen Elizabeth is the queen that went to Ireland and formally apologized as the crown to Ireland. Uh, she's the one that fundamentally transformed a lot of the commonwealths in Africa and the Caribbean to being independent and was a driving force within her own government to decolonialize a lot of these places. Was she, was her record great or perfect? Absolutely not. Um, was she Winston Churchill? Hell no. Uh, she fought with Margaret Thatcher because Thatcher did not have a gentle touch and was not interested in releasing parts of the Commonwealth, for instance, the Falklands War. Um, what she understood was soft power, and people who are interested in hard power don't, don't understand that, uh, don't understand each other. Um, hard power is the United States, we have the largest military in the world. We're pumping $2 billion a month now into the Ukraine. Um, we have weaponry and can blow your ass up, and we're willing to roll in. Vladimir Putin will kill you if you're critical. He will, you will accidentally get pushed out of a window if you're an oligarch that opposes him. That's hard power. Soft power is persuasion, and this is the power that libertarians believe in. Um... There are a lot of hard power libertarians, but I don't think they're libertarians. I think when the Libertarian Party of Colorado tweets out that, see, people love monarchy, they're really talking about how they believe they should be the monarchs. You know, someone like Pete Quinones thinks he should be the one who is in charge uh, when he talks, if you know who that is. I doubt you do. Um, but that's the problem with a lot of the alt-right libertarians. I used to say alt-right adjacent, but I think it's pretty clear that if you're supporting Jeremy Kaufman and the Libertarian Party of New Hampshire at this point, you've given up the adjacent part. Um, but there's people within these circles, within the Libertarian Party, who are exercising soft power to try and influence someone like that to moderate their tone. So they are, you, it's funny to watch people like Angela McArdle become Mark Rutherford or uh, Joe Bishop Henchman and become moder become, um, become pragmatists, excuse me, um, because they realize they're now the Libertarian Party and in charge of things. They own everything, every good and bad thing. And the people who are interested in hard power, 
um, who are the national divorce people, one way or another, were getting it by force, they realize that's an extreme problem. But they've built this institution, they're within this institution, and they can't just go and yank that guy's Twitter privileges because he's embarrassing the party because that would cause backlash, right? So I know for a fact behind the scenes that there are people who are big names who are trying to influence this guy to moderate. They won't denounce him publicly, but they're doing it privately. Well, that's a lot of what Queen Elizabeth did and understood because as the head of the constitutional monarchy, but largely defanged as a political force, she's a figurehead. She can, you know, Prince Charles has long been criticized for being outspoken about political initiatives. And he has said that as king, he cannot do that because that's not his place. Because the British people have rejected the idea of being ruled by a monarch and have parliament and a prime minister. Uh, and they keep the British monarch as like a, a figurehead. So she understood soft power and advocated for greater sovereignty in all of these different lands. I mean, when she took over, when she was born, they ruled a quarter of the earth. They don't rule a quarter of the earth anymore. They barely rule Scotland. <laughs> so, um, I think she's a model for using persuasion and soft power and a lot of people, the decolonialists, which I, I, I agree with in a lot of ways, um, mostly always, like, I just, you take Laos, for instance. Laos is the most bombed country in all of the world. Who's mad at Laos? Laos has this unfortunate position as a country in Southeast Asia. Very traditional third world route. It is founded by a great ruler thousands of years ago expands, shrinks over time, eventually gets taken over by the French. The French kind of lose their grip. The communists come in, so Americans come in to support the La Laotian royalty uh, and then bomb the hell out of the communists and the communists bomb the hell out of the American-backed uh, supporters. So colonialism then leads to extremes in two sides forming once the colonial power leaves and that bombing has led to the Laotian people never recovering from it. Well, how can you defend that? How can you defend the rape and murder of these countries and its people? You can't. You, and you can't separate the power and privilege of the British crown specifically and the British people, and Americans, by the way, more largely, the idea of colonialism is that these third world countries need saving, and we're the ones to save them, which is really code for bombing the shit out of them. Well, we have to build a world built on nonviolence, we have to build a world on self-sovereignty, and that includes the idea of rejecting colonialism. 
Um, and this is where the weird, this is the weird part of libertarians in that your right libertarian that is against being ruled over by a crown fundamentally understands it's just too noisy up here. I think I need to go in the backyard. Now there's a lawnmower and there's some sort of wine. Um, and I just noticed it in the crickets. Good Lord. Um, they understand not being ruled by a king, but they're sort of obsessed with their own position and keeping their own position. And in reality, they fundamentally agree with the leftist who's talking about decolonialization, but they reject it because it sounds woke. Which just... So you agree with the principle if you really think deeply about it, but <laughs> you just don't want to agree with this person because they're liberals. Ah, oh, there's crickets back here too, in the backyard, but at least there's no lawnmowers, I guess. So sorry if this sounds very bad. Um, but yes, I think the, the queen understood that you're just going to have to live with other people. That's the problem with the national divorce people. Is if you, if Indiana and Indiana and Illinois fundamentally break up, we break up the union into fifty different countries, or we have two unions, a blue union and a red union, and Kentucky and Indiana are aligned with Michigan, and Illinois is aligned with California. Okay, well, first of all, you're going to completely collapse the economy in a debt a debt written society and you have to remember the people who are advocating this are what we called 10 years ago collapsitarians they believe that the fastest way to speed towards a libertarian anarcho capitalist society is to collapse the current order um so they're anarchists in both sense of the words they're anarchists in the sense that they want to be ruled by no one. And they're anarchists in the sense that they want anarchy. And those, by and large, are the people that are running the National Party right now. Um, and and they're, they're shallow thinkers, and they don't really understand the consequences of what they're advocating in terms of how it really plays out. <sighs> Some of them. Others, I think, know exactly the consequences of what they want, and that's why they advocate it. Um, and they just sort of play off of what sounds right or what feels good. So, the, the problem with a national divorce and building a society built on religion... So, so if you really sit down and talk to one of these guys who has followed Menchus Moldbug and Michael Malice for a long time, you know, went to Mises events 10 years ago, and now they're, you know, monarchists or advocating for a strong central government in the uh, vein of Otto von Bismarck uh, because you had a society founded on hierarchy... So, you know, remember the lobster thing with uh, Jordan Peterson? There, there's just, there's a hierarchy of people. There's good and bad. And the reason that the Laotians are poor is that they just aren't as um, 
good or smart or uh, effective as white people, right? Now, this is not my belief in any way. Um, I'm explaining to you what a large wing of the libertarian movement now believes uh, because of, um, I think his name is Carl Yarvin, also known as Mencius Moldbug or whatever. I mean, these are alt-right beliefs. This is essentially what they're arguing. And they reject uh, liberalism totally because liberalism leads to depredation, degradation and uh, depravity and uh, moral degeneration. And uh, it's the philosophical backing for the knee-jerk reaction of not wanting uh, drag queen story hour or whatever. Right? Like, I'm not sending my kid to a drag queen story hour. Uh, there, there's no way to separate sexuality from drag, and kids have no business being at a drag show. I don't, if you take your kid to a drag show, I'm not going to put you in jail for it, but that is personally not the, the choice that my family and I would make. Um, and you should respect that, <laughs> just as I will respect you and your ability to make what's a choice for what's best for your family. Um, but both sides of the extreme reject that. The left rejects that because you are not embracing, fully embracing their ideology of gender fluidity, gender identity, um, open sexuality, letting kids be exposed to quote-unquote heroes, as I saw recently on Twitter. Um, and you must be a secret bigot if you are not going to go. And then on the other hand, you have, by allowing people to do that, by not putting them in jail, you're creating a morally degenerate society, and we need to have uh, a society built on traditions and values, and we need to make sure that um, the old world is supported. I mean, they're, they're classic conservatives. What... Uh, what is being wrought throughout the libertarian movement and within the MAGA Trump movement uh, and the Ron Paul movement, really, is the best way to put it, is a very old-school conservatism that Winston Churchill's dad would have argued for, that Cecil Rhodes would have argued for, that there's a hierarchy of people, sometimes they're going to be conquered, and... There's, you're just going to have to break a few eggs, and uh, the people who are superior need to be in charge. There's really no way to separate white nationalism from the beliefs of, what I, uh, of many of the modern movement's libertarians. And they don't like being called white nationalists or fascists, but they're just not there yet. But that's where they're going. It's like the, I had friends who, you know, if you remember the brutalist era, uh, 2014-15, with all these libertarian brutalist groups with a lot of anti-Jew memes, and they'd be like, oh, well, I'm not anti-Semitic. I'm just uh, joking. These are just jokes. And now, a couple of those people, I'm still friends with them because I want to understand what they think. And he, one guy is just openly a Holocaust denier and anti-Semitic. I'm proud of it. 
they weren't jokes. They were just like a, a permissive step towards being where they, they secretly were. It was just a way to kind of like signal to other people, this is where I'm secretly at. I'm just not willing to fully come out as where I'm at. So I'm going to make jokes because then I can hide under the just joking um, and kind of test the waters and see where everybody else is at as a social signal. And so many of these guys are, that's, they're all about social signaling and virtue signaling too. Um, I think it's well documented, the left's version of virtue signaling. I mean, I walked by a house yesterday with a, a red, white, and blue flag painted black with 62422 painted on it <clears throat> next to the pride flag next to uh, the, in this house, we believe love is love, like, you know, like that's virtue signaling because you're saying to your neighbors, I am clearly with this team. And then if I were to go on Twitter and, and this has happened since 2018, I'm one of the first people to be critical of the Mises caucus and to identify where this was going and to identify how bad this was be, would be. And I'm right. And I, I should get more credit than I do for being right about where this would lead and how it'd be the destruction of the Libertarian Party ultimately because now we have two sides that are reacting to each other and it's this um, viral loop of terribleness. Um, but they, they signal to each other. You'll see under my posts, uh, like... I don't even know what the podcast is. It's one of these podcasts that isn't original, but is basically like they listen to Dave Smith and then just regurgitate what Dave Smith or Michael Malice says. It was one of those hosts. And I was having a conversation with another guy arguing about, I think the New Hampshire tweet and Megan McCain and kind of the subject of what I'm talking about now, which is, know how, how do we approach each other and how do you you know criticize and how do you um, shape institutions and and use gentleness to be effective in the vein of of the queen here but like the podcast host just started posting memes and gifs about me and it's simply to get a lift to his feed to signal to people that I'm not to be trusted because I'm not in the group because I don't support their current thing. And these people don't understand how they're exactly like the other side because each side is just reacting to each other. I don't know what the phenomenon is called, but like you take something like the Billy Graham rule. Billy Graham rule is now known as a married Christian man should not be in a room alone with another woman out of respect for his wife, as if he somehow can't control his sexual urges. That he will somehow violate the woman or she will violate him because this associate pastor who's 275 pounds with a double chin is just so irresistible that the church secretary just can't help but suck his dick. Uh, or that, you know, there's just 
harlots everywhere who will lie about sexual abuse. Me Too was a scam. And so I just can't be around women, and, and so I just shouldn't. Um, I think there's a place for, uh, as a married man, I meet alone with women. I, my wife knows about it. We talk about it. I have female friends. But as a man or a woman in a relationship, you know where the boundaries are. Right, like Matt Chandler, who I love, and uh, obviously has stepped down because he, I don't know, was friends with a woman. I'm not quite sure what's going on there. There's either more to the story, or it's like a really hardcore overcorrection from the Matt Chandler or from the uh, scandals of other people. But that's kind of what the Billy Graham rule was. It was originally called the Modesto Manifesto. And the Modesto Manifesto was in response to several different big things that had happened that brought down ministries. Uh, It included accuracy in numbers because people... They, they reported all of their numbers at, at the Billy Graham Crusades and in, in the BGEA. And Christianity Today was started by Billy Graham and all the organizations. So it was very important to have accurate numbers. There were also people who lit- literally were trying to go to different pastors and these preachers and televangelists and everything and try to catch them out on sexual sin. And... As a response in that time, they agreed not to be alone with other women because they didn't want to give the appearance in that moment of time of being that way, right? It was never intended to be a ongoing, long-term Christian rule that every man should follow as if it were part of scriptures. It just wasn't. Um... You know, but then Mike Pence says this because he's a politician that is uh, cynical and wants to do anything to ingratiate himself to his own people. And then the left reacts to that. And then the right reacts to the left's reaction. And then the left reacts to the right's overreaction. And the right reacts to the left. And so it like builds up over time, almost, almost like the Mandela effect of being so far removed from the original piece of history or moment uh, that it's unrecognizable. And a lot of that is happening in so many areas of our world today. Um, And it's happening in the libertarian movement where we're so far from talking about libertarian ideas that libertarianism has been distilled down to is Jeremy Kaufman right to tweet what he tweets? We have let a narcissist control the conversation. We have given the narcissist exactly what they want, which is to be the conversation. The right does this with Donald Trump, and they fell for the trap. Joe Biden's speech was one of the worst speeches I've ever heard a president give, and I'll do another episode on this. 
Joe Biden was elected with a mandate to be normal, to be a uniter, to bring people together, to be a moderate. He was selected in the primary because he was a moderate, not because he was a radical. And to give a speech that went so much further than Donald Trump's, like, presidential speeches. Like, this was a presidential speech where he used taxpayer money uh, to stand in front of Independence Hall with a red, white, and blue splash. You've probably only seen the red background, but if you look at the Getty images of the speech, it's red, white, and blue. Uh, they just screwed up and put the the red in the middle for some reason. But I, I, I actually, I, I don't know if I know, I don't know if I think that that was uh, unintentional. Because what the speech was intended to do was to get the right talking about Donald Trump and to get the right to act in a way that reminds people how much they hate Republicans and Donald Trump. And so instead of red, white, and blue, it was red, it was blue, red, white. And they know, they have to know at the White House what Donald Trump understood implicitly and what we have known at We Are Libertarians since 2013 is that people don't read, they, they look at memes, they look at their Facebook feed. Um, they wanted so many people to call Joe Biden Hitler. That's what they, that was their deepest desire, that was what they wanted more than anything. And they fell for it, and they're talking about Trump. Because to not get absolutely crushed, like they were, they were losing. You remember Mitch McConnell saying, you know, I've never seen numbers like this. We're 12 points ahead. That's now three points and closing because of Dobbs and abortion. And just because of the general way that Republicans act now, like this Blake Masters, former Lou Rockwell writer, clear anti-Semite. I'm sure he's just joking. So I'll say allegedly. You know, I'm sure it's just all a joke. Um, the, these, they're reminding people of what they don't like. What the, what independents, which are ever growing and now more than 33% of the electorate, of which many of you listening would probably identify yourselves as independents more than even libertarians anymore, um, want is exactly what Elizabeth was talking about that. They, they want criticism, they want reform, they want institutions to be more responsive, more humane. Um, what they don't, what, and then they want it done with gentleness and understanding. There's always going to be a core of people on either side that want extremism, um, but that's not, like Donald Trump lost an easy election by being Donald Trump, and Joe Biden won by being quiet and boring, and Joe Biden's going to lose again because he's not followed his own mandate. Uh, the other thing I'll say about Queen Elizabeth and, and the reaction to it, I think, is the is our own struggle with time and death, and as I approach 40, as I turn 39 today... Uh, she's been a constant, you hear that, she's been a constant calming presence. Um, and she has. She's, uh, she's been there since the 50s, and it, you see, like, Mick Jagger, who's old as hell now, you know, tweeting about how his remembrances of her as a kid when she was being crowned. Uh, 
It's hard to find somebody who remembers uh, life under her father, right? Like she's our whole life. She's been the queen, right? The uh, cotton-headed, you know, Monty Python queen. Uh, she's the queen. Like when you think about it, I'm sure some of you think of Beyonce or Queen Latifah, but um, like generally, if you said the queen, most people would think the queen of England. Um, and so that disappearing has some implications. I've been thinking a lot about this lately as I, as I get older. I'm so glad that I got to grow up in the 80s and 90s. And like uh, my YouTube randomly came up on Red Skelton on Johnny Carson. And it was hilarious. And Red Skelton in this video is like 70s. Uh, clearly kind of retired and out, out of the game, but like Johnny Carson's fangirling because he loved him as a kid. My grandfather loved Red Skelton as a kid. He was this comedian from Vincennes, Indiana, who had a radio and TV show and did all these weird characters like uh, Junior, talked like a little kid, and Clem Cladibital Hopper, who was kind of a hobo type. Um... And he was a, like a lot of these comedians like George Burns and uh, Milton Berle and Bob Hope who all came up under the vaudeville circuit before there was radio and television. Um, I just saw the Elvis movie and it's a lot like that too where night after night after night, several shows a day, you're just traveling town to town just face to face with an audience grinding it out, learning what people like, learning from carnies, learning from you know, all these different, you know, musicians and acrobatic and like circus people and honing your comedic skills, like, uh, in thousands of hours of small audiences across the country. And that generation of comedians in the thirties and forties and fifties and into the sixties just had like this amazing, like, it's like the distillation of all of history show business because every you you just had the art of performance theater music comedy uh it had kind of been suppressed for so long or was underground or you know that scene in Downton Abbey when it's revealed that Carlson or whatever is is a was a former actor and it was shameful. Um, well, it wasn't shameful by the time you got to the eighteen hundreds, early in nineteen hundreds. So it was allowed to run free, but you still didn't have mass media. It was still so local, and so the generation before the greatest generation and the greatest generation preserved kind of the pre mass media distillation of human history's entertainment. And it was amazing. It was focused on show business and making you laugh and like just evoking, you know, and Elvis was like the zenith of it. You know, this guy who just mixes blues and gospel and, um, you know, black and white gospel and jazz and country and puts it into this crazy package with this manager who was a former, like Colonel Parker was, uh, like 
escape from Holland because he allegedly murdered somebody and uh, like ringed every dime and created all these crazy new contracts for Elvis because he was just a bullshit artist of the highest order things to his days in the carnival and turned Elvis, you know, Elvis by the end had like these massive orchestras, a white gospel choir, a black gospel choir, and had the money to just like take it to a level that nobody could take it to, not even the Beatles, um, and had this level of showmanship that nobody could touch because he had all those hundreds of hours in the South traveling around the country. And he's kind of like the perfect storm of all of these pre-mass media impulses driving into one like manic driven (laughs) manically driven person um you know and and everything that came after that uh has sort of just been hollow copies and you know nfts and uh and i think there's some arguments for traditionalism you know, like when Jennifer Lawrence says that she no longer uh, wants to fuck with anybody who's not political because the times are too, like, I just want some show business out of you. I want you to entertain me. I want to escape. You know, we're in a moment of entertainment where everybody wants to escape. They want dad jokes. They want to forget the pandemic. They want to move on from politics when they're being entertained. They're, they, You know, we've had a generation of media that wants to, you know, like, I love The Wire and, and it, how it deals with all these complex topics. And it was my favorite show when I watched it. And I restarted it. And I'm just like, I just want to, like, laugh. I, don't, I just don't want to feel sad. I don't want like, I want to escape from some of this stuff because it's all so serious. Uh, and I think we're seeing the renaissance of kind of that 30s um, slapstick silliness that, that will come back. Um, I have no idea how I got off on this tangent. But, um, I think, it, I, th- I, th- I think, oh, yes. I loved watching Red Skelton with my grandfather. I loved watching John Wayne with my grandfather. I loved listening to old time radio shows because of him. Uh, my grandparents. And great-grandparents, lived until the late 90s, um, gave me an insight into an old world. Uh, You know, southern grandparents showing me kind of the powder blue bathroom southern style. The, uh, you know, the urban grandparents on my mom's side kind of showing me, you know, entertainment and values from an older time. Grandpa was in World War II, um, just a very value-oriented human being. He passed away 25 years ago on September 7th. I had uh, to go to his showing, Wake, on my birthday at 12. So uh, definitely going to beat that today, I'm sure. Um, but I got I, I just because of these influences, got to see like a world before the Internet that doesn't exist anymore. Uh, that is so subjective, so aggressive, um, so... I I think the people criticizing postmodernism are right, 
and and you've seen that struggle if you watch the crown the battle between you know elizabeth as a young person battling winston churchill and trying to be this progressive figure and change the monarchy in britain as a figurehead versus the no no this is the traditional way to do it versus her later years where she's the one tugging at charles saying no no this is the way we do it um I think it's an interesting arc because she gives us a window back into things that we remember that no longer exist. And those of us who are a little older um, know what was different and know what we miss uh, and know how things are different and know they're never coming back. Um, I think American patriotism is maybe a good example of this. Uh, it just was like a rock solid assumption that you do the pledge and sing the anthem and that you loved your country and that Washington chopped down the cherry tree. And there's something comforting about those um, traditions and rhythms of life and shared beliefs and shared conversations. Um, and you miss the comfort. But that doesn't mean that it's right, right? Like, there still has to be the whole truth. There has to be the whole truth of Washington being this honorable man who is the father of our country, who uh, was uh, not disposed to power, but declining it. Trash man's coming. I'm going to go to the garage to minimize the sound here. Um... But there also has to be the truth of the man was a slave owner uh, and participated in a tyrannical system and did not fully believe in freedom, even if he personally struggled with it. Life of Queen Elizabeth is one where she tried to give independence to commonwealths, but she didn't go all the way, did she? Uh, so she's got a complicated legacy like everyone else that has ever lived in all of humanity. Um. And so we've got to be open and honest about all of the truth. And that uncertainty really jars us. It, the future of the unknown and the lack of feeling of control really disturbs us. Uh, change disturbs people. Um, and I think it's a universal trait. It's just sort of the generation that you're in in some ways. Like I have... I have enjoyed watching the Elvis stuff because it reminded me of being a kid and kind of the Southern vibe that I grew up with and was around with my family and the uncle with the bell-bottom pants and the sideburns in the late 80s still uh, because he loved Elvis. Uh, you know, so I, I love some of that stuff because it just it, it's comforting because it, you remember that time when things were a little bit more secure um, and it's hard to embrace, but, you know, every generation, like Generation Z comes along and wants to change everything and undo everything and do things differently because they don't think it's right. Um, and then they get older and realize that maybe some of these traditions were good, but it's too, too late to recapture them. So, so I think she, uh, the sadness and the complication of her passing for, for so many people is that, especially British people where... You're going on into Charles. It's totally unknown. He's not a likable person. William has much more of the respect for the institution 
as a grandson, which she was smart in that. So the old lady got her grandson knowing Charles is a lost cause, is going to do what he wants to do. Um, he'll keep most of the traditions, but William is going to be an influence for far longer because he's going to influence his kids. And so if you want the old ways to last, you got to invest in the grandkid uh, and tell him what came before. Because you have to remember, what's your great-grandparents' names? Both, both, all four sets. Do you know anything about them? I couldn't tell you. And like, that was like, they died in the thirties or forties, except, except for the ones that I knew until the nineties. Like, I don't know anything about my extended family. So memories are, are very short. Your life is very short and you matter to the hundred people that you're engaged with. Uh, and you will not matter in a hundred years to anybody. <laughs> Maybe you will have influenced future generations by taking the time to invest in them and have conversations and remind them of what the past was like and why these things are important. Um, but you know, anyways, all right, well, thank you for indulging an old man on his birthday and allowing him to prattle on about many different things. Uh, I had a lot more to say than I thought. I do want to open my present from Joshua Sexton. Uh, Joshua is a longtime listener. He is one of the few people I know, other than Christy Avery, who has listened to every single episode of the podcast, all 1,300. You can listen to all of them. Uh, if you are a subscriber, there is a podcast feed where you can go back and listen to all the old episodes. And so for years now, you know, here in my garage, uh, I just found the box of business cards. This was the first business card that Joshua Sexton sent me. Uh, dear Le Chris Spangle, dear leader, generous and thorough. Um, I will post a picture of this in the Facebook group, the wall, W-A-L nuts, two words, uh, Facebook group. Go join it. I'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, and I'll put a, a picture of, of this present. But Joshua got me coasters one year uh, that had funny sayings from the show. Last year, he gave me votive candles uh, that had pictures of all the co-hosts. Eleonora still loves her. Oh, I mean, Squish. Please pretend you never heard my stepdaughter's name. Um, she loves it. She thinks it's the coolest thing that her picture is on a candle. Uh, she played with them for months after, like, they were dolls, where Daddy Candle was talking to Mommy and Squish Candle. <laughs> it was very cute. Uh, one year he sent me a painting in a Napoleonic dress. So he has sent me a new uh, gift, which I'm going to open now. It's from Teddy's Creative Market here down in Charlotte, North Carolina. He addressed it to, Oh Lord, Chris Spangle. He also made me a lord last year. Uh, I am a an official lord of a piece of territory in this little British island. Um, so he always sends the best gifts. And when I talked to him in January, he said, uh, do you find it creepy that I spend more on your birthday than any other person in your family, including your wife? He didn't say that, but that's what he does. Uh, but he did ask me if he thought it was creepy because his wife had gotten into his head that he is sending another grown man. By the way, yesterday was his birthday. Happy birthday. Uh, he's a year older than me. 
she convinced him that it was very creepy that he was sending another grown man many different presents with usually his face on it. And uh, I convinced him that, no, I'm very vain, and I think it's hilarious, and the gifts are always funny, uh, always great, puts a lot of thought and time into this. Like I said, way more thought and time than Reagan puts into any present of mine. I think it's a painting... It's kind of a long, flat box, like it's a painting, and it says, Do Not Crush. Uh, and I said, No, I love it. So I will put a picture of this up in the show notes for you. Yes, it looks like it is some sort of painting. Oh, this is awesome. Okay, so it is, it, it's not a painting, per se. This is the coolest present yet. Uh, so it is, (laughs) it is like a framed, I don't even know how he made this, but this is great. So at Bob and Tom on the walls or around the radio station that I work with, there are these framed gold records with the CD art and a title like behind it. And so what he has done is created a gold record of the Chris Spangle show with the title of the record being is anyone else really ticked off, which was an actual episode from six thirteen, um, and is implying that that went gold, which, uh, I'm a little disappointed. It's not platinum, but that's okay. It, it's still great. Uh, it, that it's got the show podcast art cover over the CD with the Chris Spangle show and, uh, the, the taglines for the show. This is amazing. This is so funny. Uh, it is exactly like a real gold record that, you know, we have John Mellencamp gold records at the radio station. That's hysterical. Um, so thank you, Josh, for sending the present. That is so cool. Um, I will never have a, another gold record. Uh, and it's so cool to have a podcast that went gold and it was titled as anyone else really ticked off. So a uh, beautiful gift from a beautiful man uh, whose wife thinks that he may secretly be in love with me. So this is definitely the best one yet uh, and so funny and thoughtful. So thank you. Um, thanks everybody for listening and indulging me. And taking the time to help me um, blow off work for an hour. I don't know how long I've been talking. Every time I go look, I'm like, oh my god, that was an hour. Who's going to listen to this? But uh, several of you have written in and said that you enjoy these little uh, chats. And I appreciate it. I'm going to keep doing them. uh, Maybe a little more frequently because I think they're fun to do. And look for the We Are Libertarians roundtable to come back soon. We're setting up a Saturday to clean the place and get it all set up and I got the money for the furniture and all that good stuff and um, you guys are the best and I thank everybody for listening and we'll talk to you soon.